2: Hey friends, Alisa Childers here. Today we're going to talk about a topic that's been a source of controversy in the evangelical world for a while, the issue of evolution and the age of the earth. How old is the earth? Does it matter theologically what we believe about these things? We're going to talk about it on today's podcast. recently there was a Christian Post article that came down my Facebook newsfeed, and it caught my attention because it was talking about one of my favorite things to talk about, and that is the age of the earth, evolution, and everything that's tied up with um, those kind of topics. And I've actually been wanting to do a podcast on this topic ever since I started my podcast. I just haven't gotten around to to do it, but with Jurassic World in the theaters and then this recent controversy that I'm going to talk about in a second, it just seemed like a good time to do it. So basically, the controversy and debate that's happening right now is surrounding a recent Hillsong worship song. And so uh, the article that came down my newsfeed said... Hillsong's Joel Houston clarifies evolution views after sparking debate with worship song, So Will I. And uh, so uh, from what I can tell, there's been quite a bit of debate ever since Hillsong released this song called So Will I, 100 Billion X. I haven't heard the song, uh, but the lyric that is the controversial lyric says, And as you speak, a hundred billion creatures catch your breath, evolving in pursuit of what you said. And so there has just, I guess, been a ton of debate about this on Twitter. And so Houston responded and he said, evolution is undeniable. Created by God as reflective means of displaying nature's pattern of renewal in pursuance of God's word, an ode to the nature of the creative God it reflects, and only ever in part, not the source. Science and faith aren't at odds. God created the Big Bang. So that, uh, I guess there were quite a few exchanges on Twitter, and then he wrote, context, context, Things evolve, they adapt and change. I don't believe in evolution as a theory of source. I believe it's merely a pattern of nature created by God, reflecting nature's desire for renewal, survival, new life, something, some, one, and that one is in all caps, like God. And then he said, I think what gets lost, strangely enough, is that in any case, the word comes before any kind of big bang. Let there be light, boom, boom. And there was. He was asked, I guess, if he believed in the Big Bang or a literal six-day creation. And then he said, it means I believe that God created everything and His word came first. And uh, he did clarify, though, that he said, I believe God created humanity out of the dust and breathed His breath spirit into us. And he was answering that in the context of being asked if he thinks that we evolved from apes. And so uh, I just was fascinated by this article because I can see where a lot of the confusion is coming from. And uh, I'm going to read some more of his quotes a little later, but I want to talk a little bit first about this whole topic of the age of the earth, Big Bang, evolution, uh, old earth, young earth. What is going on with all of these different views on origins and creation? It causes a lot of Christians to just throw up our hands and say, whatever, <laughs> you know, however God did it, he did it. I don't really care, and that's fine. But I hope to convince you that you should care about it. And it does matter. And uh there is a lot of confusion, and there are a lot of misconceptions misconceptions in the church about this issue. So let's let's dive in. I think what I'm gonna do is divide this podcast sort of between uh, the scientific views, and then the theological implications, because those are the two things as Christians we need to think about, because we need to think biblically as Christians about everything that we think about. And And this is the thing I just want to encourage you, if you're listening, and this is kind of a new topic for you, you haven't really thought much about this, be encouraged, because... Jesus said, I am the way I am the truth. Jesus is the truth. And so there is nothing we're going to discover in science that's going to rock his world. There's nothing that's going to be learned That is truthful, that's in contradiction to who he is. So, the truth, Jesus is the truth. So, we don't need to fear, we don't need to worry when we come to topics like this. And I do agree with Houston that science and faith are not at odds. And I actually agree with some things that I read that he said, but I do think there's a little confusion in there. And I hope to help clear that up for people who might be reading and going, What is going on with this? Okay, so the first thing we need to think about is really, really, really important. And let me just start with kind of how I grew up. I grew up in kind of your regular evangelical Christianity. Now, I I was raised in more of the charismatic stream. Uh, So that, that was my world. And interestingly, my parents never said this to me. They never told me that the biblical view of creation is that God created the world in six 24-hour literal days, and if you believe anything else, you're a heretic. They never said that to me. They never even implied that to me. But somehow along the way, I caught that. So whether it was from youth group or camps or just whatever books I was reading or the schools I went to, I have no idea where I caught that because I can't remember really anyone saying that. I went to Christian schools, and I think I do remember being taught uh, the young Earth view that the Earth is six to ten thousand years old, and that's the biblical view, and that's what we believe that that probably did happen in my schools. Uh, so w- people who know my story know that one of the first things that kind of rocked my world when my faith was challenged was the issue of the age of the Earth. And just to recount that story, as an adult, I had been invited to be a part of a small study group. Uh, with a pastor who was more of an agnostic at the time. So he was bringing up a lot of objections against traditional Christianity and what I had always believed. And so I remember sitting in the class and the pastor saying, is there, okay, is there anybody in here that still believes Adam and Eve were real people and that the earth is 6,000 years old? And that was the first time I'd ever even considered that there was another view. And I just remember looking down at my desk, just going, what is happening right now? I had no idea how to respond to that question. I had absolutely no idea how to even separate the actually two different, very different issues that he had brought up, the age of the earth and a literal Adam and Eve. So I dove in uh, to that topic first. And what I learned is something very interesting. Most Christians I meet and I really mean most, believe that there are only two views of origins in the Christian world. And that is young earth, that God created the earth in six days. And well, that I want to be really precise how I word this, that God created the earth in six literal 24 hour days, or evolution is true. And uh, so I think it's really, 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 really important when we think about the age of the earth, to think biblically about it. So the first thing I want to do right now is talk about what the Bible says about the age of the earth, because there is actually a third view that many conservative Christians take. And that is the view that the earth is actually old in line with the modern consensus of science, but that God did not use Darwinian, a Darwinian type of evolution to get it started. Okay, so let's untie all this. Let's unpack it. So in the Genesis account of creation, when the word day is used, see, Hebrew is a much smaller language than English. I heard Hugh Ross, who's an astrophysicist who talks a lot about this, say that in Hebrew... There are just a few thousand words, whereas in English, we have, I think, something up to like a million words in English to choose from to communicate what we're trying to say. So in Hebrew, there are, you know, every word has some different meanings and you have to look at the context. And that's what translators do is they look at the context to try to figure out what the word is actually saying. So when in the creation account, it talks about a day, it's the, the Hebrew word is yom, and there are a few different meanings to that word. It can mean a literal 24-hour day. It can mean uh, an era like uh, back in the day of someone, the era of. It can also mean the daylight hours, sun up to sundown. And it's kind of like that in English too, isn't it? You know, the word day has some different meanings. Now I've listened to a lot of different Hebrew scholars on this and they're very split on it. Some will tell you, yeah, there's room to say that the word for day could mean just an era or a really long period of time. And then others will tell you, it's really hard to get away from the idea that that is meaning a 24 hour period. And so here's what I want to communicate to, to Christians Either way, whether you take the view that that word day means a long period of time or a literal 24-hour day, it still does not tell you how old the earth is. And what I mean is this. Let's look at Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So right there in Genesis 1.1, you have God speaking into existence, space, time, matter, everything that came into existence, boom, came into existence in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And as a little side note, just because I think things like this are really fun and interesting— Right here in Genesis 1 1, you have the Trinity. The concept of the Trinity is present right here in Genesis 1 1. Let me explain. So you have in the beginning, God, you have God, and then you have the spirit of God hovering over the face of the waters. That's the Holy Spirit. And then if you go over to John 1, it says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. So you have the word, as we know later, the word became flesh. The word is Jesus. And it's saying Jesus is God in John 1. And then here's what it says. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made. That was made. So Jesus was there, the Spirit was there, God the Father was there, the Trinity is present in Genesis 1 in perfect unity, which is just a fun little side note. Uh, so, you know, you get that one for free today. All right, so back to Genesis 1 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So, when did God create the heavens and the earth? In the beginning. But it doesn't actually say when the beginning was. So no matter how you interpret the word yom, whether it's a literal 24-hour day or an age, that all comes after in the beginning. God had already created the matter that made up the heavens and the earth. So I don't think you can make a biblical case for the age of the earth or for the age of the universe. The Bible just simply doesn't speak to it. Now, what I think the Bible does speak to are things that will get into issues of evolution, and we're going to get to that in just a second. But I really want to drive this home. I think it's a false dichotomy to say that either the earth is 6,000 years old or evolution is true. That is a false dichotomy that many Christians believe is true. And there's actually a third view. There there are three main views in uh, Christendom, okay? So there's the, the young earth view, there's the old earth view, and then there's the theistic evolutionary view, which would be more along the definition of Darwinian evolution. But the old earth view is greatly misunderstood, especially in the evangelical world. So, I'm not going to argue with you if you take a young earth view or an old earth view. I'm not going to argue with you on that. Now, the hill that I will die on is the theistic evolutionary view personally, because in my view, when you get into accepting the Darwinian paradigm and putting a God label on it, that gets theological. And I'm going to explain why in a moment when we look at God creating humans. For the young earth and the old earth view... Both views believe the Bible to be inerrant and historical, that the creation account is literally true. Now, there's some poetic language in there, but both of those views will say, as it's written is how it happened. And in order to hold a theistic evolutionary view We have to do some creative interpretation and make the creation story more of an ancient poem or a myth to explain uh, morality and things like that. And that's the hill I would die on because the Bible says that God created man out of the dust, breathed life into him. So man, humans were a special creation of God. They did not evolve from some other species. They were a special creation. And again, that's the hill that I will die on, not whether the earth is 6,000 years old. And that's just a really important uh, thing. And I think that maybe in this recent controversy, that might be what's causing a lot of confusion is people are kind of assuming this false dichotomy that you either have to believe the earth is young or that evolution is true. So let's talk about the Big Bang. Christians, don't fight against the Big Bang. This is just my opinion, but the Big Bang is some of the greatest evidence for the existence of God, no matter how old you believe the earth is. The definition of the Big Bang is the universe exploding into existence out of nothing. Well, read the Hebrew Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Bang. Bang. You have the Big Bang right there in Genesis 1-1, and the scientific evidence for the Big Bang being true is overwhelming. And this is actually something Christians can tend to shy away from, but we should run right into this evidence. It's it's amazing. If you can hear in my voice, I start to get excited about it. Things like the the second law of thermodynamics, uh, the, the evidence of the radiation they found from the Big Bang, and uh, Einstein's theory of general relativity, all of these things come together to show that the Big Bang is a real thing. Now, why is this important for Christians? Because if the universe had a beginning point, then the law of causality says that everything that begins to exist must have a cause. Therefore, guess what? The universe has to have a cause. This flies in the face of an atheistic worldview. This evidence for the universe having a beginning, the Big Bang, is not something Christians should be afraid of. Again, no matter how old you think the earth is. The Big Bang lines up perfectly with Genesis 1-1, and that is not something we should uh, be afraid of. So let's get into evolution a little bit. Why is is the Darwinian paradigm of evolution a problem for Christians? Again, there's the science side, and then there's the theological side. So let's just talk a little bit about the science first. It's really, really important when we talk about evolution— that we define what we mean by that word. And when someone asks you as a Christian, do you believe in evolution? The first thing you should say is what do you mean by evolution? Because the word evolution means change over time. And I think all of us from young earth creationists to Darwinian evolutionists will agree that there has been change over time. That is pretty much scientifically Undeniable. So, what we're really talking about is what's called microevolution versus macroevolution. Microevolution has to do with change over time that you can observe within species. So, an example of microevolution would be sheep farmers discovering that when they bred their woolliest sheep, with woolly, you know, they took all of their woolliest sheep and bred those sheep together, they would come up with a new breed of sheep that had extra woolly coats. So you can breed that or observe it in nature. So an example of that same type of new breed of sheep coming up naturally in nature would be cold winters would have killed off the less woolly sheep, leaving the woolliest sheep to breed with each other thus making a new strong breed of sheep. And, and that would be through an unguided natural process. And I think everybody would affirm that that type of change over time is true. I mean, this is how we get different breeds of dogs and toy poodles and all of these other things. So it's it's microevolution is an observed change over time that everybody would agree is true. So if that's what you mean by evolution then I'm fine with that. But usually when people use the word evolution, they're referring to this concept of macroevolution, the idea that all life forms descended from a common ancestor, the first one-celled creature, uh, by a blind, unguided natural process. And so this theory is based on the observations of microevolution, but macroevolution, the idea that one species can turn into another species has actually never been observed in a lab or in nature. And, and it, just, a, just a side note, something to keep in mind is that Darwin had no theory for the origin of life, at least officially. So even if macroevolution turned out to be true, it still doesn't explain how the whole thing got started. Now, the problem I have with theist, what, what's called theistic evolution And there are different types of theistic evolution, and I don't mean to overgeneralize, but it's not a long podcast, so I got to keep it moving. But if God used evolution, like on the macro sense, the macro evolution, to achieve his creative purposes, that is still an intelligent design theory, because the Darwinian evolution is that it's a blind, unguided natural process. And if someone takes the view that God has done this. It's still an intelligent design theory. So, it's not really the same thing as Darwinian evolution, which would say this is blind and unguided. So, uh that's just something to to keep in mind and you know, there is evidence of uh different species having very similar DNA. I I think we have something like 92% similar DNA as mice, 85 to 95% similar dna as apes um there's even you know people use this as a joke but there's like 50 to 60% similar dna as a banana you know but but we have to ask ourselves we all have the same facts but we have to look at those facts and come to a conclusion so this could either be evidence for common ancestry as the darwinian paradigm would suggest or this could be evidence for a common creator and because of what the bible says about God's creation, I'm going to side with that being evidence for a common creator. So that's just a tiny, tiny little helicopter flyover of what we're talking about when we use these terms regarding evolution from a scientific perspective. Now let's talk about the theological implications of how you think about the age of the earth. For me, it comes down to Adam and Eve. Any view that is going to say that Adam and Eve were not literal people is a view that's not tenable for me, and I don't think it it fits with Christianity. So in Hebrew, Adam is a proper name, but it's also a general term that refers to all humans. So Eve uh, and Eden are also proper names, but they can signify other things like Eve signifying life and Eden signifying pleasure. So all three of these names have symbolic significance in the Hebrew language. Um, so because of the symbolic quality, some maybe in the theistic evolutionary camp have concluded that maybe these events described in Genesis 1 through 4 are not historical, but it's the story is more of an allegory um, that describes the effects of sin and evil on humanity. But I think there are some problems with that view. First of all, just as English poetry has certain style and unique characteristics, you know, you've got rhyme and meter, ancient poetry, ancient Hebrew poetry has specific characteristics as well. You've got parallelism, rhythmic patterns, other things. So there's a Hebrew scholar, Edward J. Young, and He noted in a piece he wrote for the Westminster Theological Journal that Genesis one does not have the two line parallelism, which is a major characteristic of Hebrew poetry. So the story is told in a poetic way, but the Genesis account is not exhibiting the main characteristics of a poem. It's exhibiting the characteristics of of like a narrative prose, which is describing a series of events. And again, there's poetic language in there, but the, the genre that it should be looked at is historical. So second thing I have a problem with that view is that you have all these Old Testament genealogies and frankly, New Testament genealogy that treats Adam as a literal person. If you're writing an ancient poem or an allegory, you're not going to put your allegorical character into a literal genealogy that you're tracing the bloodline of the Messiah back to. So it it in the Old Testament, genealogies treat Adam as a literal person. They give his exact age when his son is born, and they give his exact age when he dies. You don't do that with allegories. You don't do that with things that are mythical in nature. And then these genealogies in the Old Testament, they also link Adam directly to Noah and all the way to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Moses. And I mean, you'd have to make the case that the Bible's treating all of these figures uh, as non-historical if you're going to say that it's treating Adam as non-historical. And then the third problem I have with this view is that Adam is viewed as a literal person in several places in the New Testament. So in Luke 3, uh, you have that genealogy tracing Jesus's ancestry all the way back to Adam. Paul refers to Adam as a historical person in 1 Timothy, Jude does, and then Luke does in Acts, he writes that God made the nations of men from one man. And then, of course, Jesus himself alludes to Adam and Eve as literal people in uh, the Gospels of Matthew and Mark. And then interestingly, if someone wants to argue with that and say, well, you can't, you know, really, he didn't really actually say their names. But then in Matthew twenty-three thirty-five, Jesus refers to the literal murder of Abel, Adam and Eve's son. So he's he did mention Abel. So I think it's really clear from these biblical texts that the genre for the Genesis account is historical narrative, and that um, both testaments refer to Adam and Eve as real literal people that actually existed. So I think that's the biblical case that they did exist. Now we have to ask ourselves: theologically, does it matter if they really existed? So I remember when I first started teaching apologetics and a teenage boy asked me, what would it mean for salvation if Adam and Eve never existed? And I loved that question because this is the key question. This is the question we need to be asking ourselves. And so where we go for our answer here mainly is in Romans 5. So in Romans 5, 12 through 17, Paul is talking about sin entering the world through one man, through Adam. Now he connects this directly to salvation coming through one man, Jesus. So if Adam was not a literal person, then you have a huge problem with what Paul is saying here in Romans, that sin entered the world through one man. If that one man didn't really exist, then how did sin get here? In my view, with all of the research I've done, and I've read people who don't believe Adam and Eve were real people. I've read their explanations, and I still don't understand how sin entered the world if there was no fall. If there was no literal fall, then how do you explain sin? And that gets tricky because then you almost in a way have to say, well, God created sin, God, uh, and, and that starts to implicate God's character. It, it can get really dicey. And in 1 Corinthians 15, 22, and 45, Paul communicates that death came through the first Adam and life has come through the last Adam. Again, how did death get here? If you don't have the first Adam, then it sort of makes what Jesus did meaningless. So regarding original sin, the fall of man, I mean, it's not difficult to recognize that something in the world is wrong. Even your Uh, far left liberals to your far right conservatives are recognizing that something is wrong with the world. We are fallen. We are broken. And so the Bible teaches that sin entered the world because of Adam's choice to disobey God and that we inherited that sin nature from Adam. And so here's the point. If sin didn't enter the world at a specific moment in history, then the only explanation... For our fallenness is that we would have been created in that sinful state. Now, if we were created in a sinful state and we didn't have we didn't have responsibility for that, then we're not accountable for it. And if we're not accountable for our sin, we don't need a savior. So, the truth of a literal Adam and Eve actually speaks to core truths of the gospel uh, itself. So, we it's really important what we think about whether Adam and Eve were literal people or not. And again, this doesn't necessarily have to do with what you think about the age of the earth. You can believe the earth is young or you can believe the earth is old and still believe that Adam and Eve were literal people, that the Genesis account of creation is historical. Richard B. Gaffin Jr. wrote, the truth of the gospel stands or falls with the historicity of Adam as the first human being from whom all other human beings descend. What scripture affirms about creation, especially the origin of humanity is central to its teaching about salvation. So in my view, the gospel teaches that Adam and Eve literally existed and the gospel depends on it. So that's the theological look at a literal Adam and Eve, let's take a look quickly as we close here at the scientific evidence for Adam and Eve really existing. And there's so I mean, science, scientists are continually making new discoveries. And so, you know, if you want to keep up on the science for this, I highly recommend you go to Hugh Ross's site, which is reasons.org. They keep up with all the science and all of this. But just to put it very basically, about 30 to 100 years ago, there was a a hypothesis called the multi-regional hypothesis. And the vast majority of scientists believed at that time That humans could be traced back to not to one primordial couple, but to many diverse populations of um, human forms all all over the globe. And so that was the multi-regional hypothesis. But today, that hypothesis is rejected by the vast majority of evolutionary biologists. These aren't, I'm not just talking about Christians who do science. This is just the vast majority of your general evolutionary biologists. So what's more widely accepted now? is called the Out of Africa Hypothesis. And that claims that modern humans first appeared 50 to 100,000 years ago in one regional location in East Africa. And then from there, they spread throughout the globe. Now, does that prove Adam and Eve were the first literal couple? No, but it shows that science has gone in that direction. So It doesn't prove them, but it's one step closer to agreement with the biblical account. So, but you might be thinking, yeah, but the Bible says that Adam and Eve were put in the Garden of Eden, but you're saying that science says they came out of Africa. Well, the exact location of the Garden of Eden is actually debated. The the Gihon River that's described in Genesis 2 flows out of Cush, which is likely most modern day Africa. So even if Eden didn't quite reach to Africa, but was isolated to that Mesopotamian part of the world, it still doesn't challenge the biblical narrative because remember, Adam and Eve were actually cast out of the garden because of their sin. So biblically speaking, humanity's population growth could have happened outside of the Garden of Eden. Well, it would have happened outside of the Garden of Eden anyway. Uh, So looking at the mitochondrial DNA and the Y-chromosomal studies, these studies have allowed scientists to trace human origins back to a single pair of humans, a single male and a single female. So uh, naturally, Christians are going, yay, that that's evidence for us. And I mean, again, it's a step closer. It doesn't necessarily prove anything, um, but it's moving in that direction. And what I mean by that is like as recently as the early 2000s, the general consensus of science was that mitochondrial Eve, which is what they call the female of the first primordial pair, and then Y chromosomal Adam, existed about 100,000 years apart. And so this was a problem because you can't, <laughs> they can't get together and start populating the Earth if they lived 100,000 years apart. Um, but Dr. Fuzz Rana over at Reasons.org wrote this, he said, now based on better estimates of mutation rates for mitochondrial DNA, use of larger regions of the Y chromosome, and inclusion of rare rare Y chromosome variants, the dates for mitochondrial Eve and Y chromosomal Adam converge at about 150,000 years ago. So they're converging together. So again, this doesn't prove that Adam and Eve existed. Uh, I'm not saying that but it does not disagree with the biblical account, and it doesn't disprove the biblical account. So the Bible doesn't tell us, again, when Adam and Eve were created, but it clearly does communicate that they were created. Now, the objection that's often brought up to this is that many evolutionary biologists conclude that there must have been many Adams and many Eves. And that this DNA evidence only tells us about two of many first humans, Uh, not a single pair, but just, you know, one of the first single pairs. But the main problem with this conclusion is that it's just based on an assumption that Darwinian evolution is true. So you have to, to assume the Darwinian paradigm to even make this objection. So there are many reasons again, without getting too deep in the weeds here, there are many reasons to reject the idea that humanity evolved from a large population rather than a single pair. Um, so there's just my main point here is that there's no disagreement with the biblical narrative. In fact, science as we discover more is actually moving more toward the idea that there was a literal first pair. Um, and, and again, when I say science, I don't mean to say science says, you know, it, we all have the same evidence, we come to conclusions, it's scientists that evaluate the evidence and, and make s- philosophical statements. But it seems that the consensus of what they're interpreting the evidence to mean is moving more toward the biblical narrative. So science has not disproved a literal Adam and Eve Remember, 30 years ago, scientists believed that humanity evolved from various populations all around the globe. But today, they mostly agree it came from one population located in Africa. So we can't claim that science proves the existence of Adam and Eve. But again, the trajectory seems to be going in that direction. So let's come back with all of that information. Let's come back now to this Joel uh, Houston interview. One thing I really appreciate about what he said, he was asked directly if he believed that man evolved from apes. And he said, I believe God created humanity out of the dust and breathed his breath spirit into us. And what I hope he's saying, what I think he might be saying is that he is affirming that Adam and Eve were literal people that existed in history, that God formed them from the dust and breathed his breath into them. Uh, but it's hard to tell because there is some vague language there. Uh, He could mean that there was an evolution that took place from a species of ape to human and that was made from dust and then God breathed his breath into the human. Uh, So it's just not clear. And I understand why people were confused and sideswiped by this and... Uh, I don't think it's helpful because it just doesn't clarify what he's really saying about creation. So that's why I wanted to do this podcast to just maybe help us think through these things, help us to be more precise with the way we word things regarding creation and origins, and to help us understand uh, how better to think through these issues. So to sum it all up, there are three basic views within Christianity and that is the young Earth view that the Earth is three to, uh, I'm sorry, six to ten thousand years old, and there is biblical arguments for that and scientific arguments for that. The second view is that the Earth is old and more in line with the general consensus of secular science regarding simply the age of the Earth, and again, there's biblical arguments for that and scientific arguments for that. And of those two views. I don't take a position, I don't know, the Bible doesn't really speak to the age of the earth, I don't have a problem with either one of those, and I'm not going to argue with anybody who holds one of those. Both the young earth view and the old earth view are going to affirm a literal Adam and Eve, that humans are a special creation of God, uh, the only creation that he breathed his very breath into. The only creation that was made in his image. And so both old and young earth are going to affirm those things. Now, the third view, theistic evolution, or sometimes called evolutionary creation, is not a view that's tenable for me as a Christian. I I think there are significant theological problems, biblical interpretive problems with that view. And we're also living in a time where even secular scientists are beginning to really openly question that Darwinian paradigm. And so I think scientifically and theologically, it's a view that I uh, just can't affirm. And so I hope that this has helped you a little bit. Uh, I know this was such a big issue for me when I first started thinking through all of these things. So I just pray that this has been clear and helpful for you. And uh, a great book that will help you with this topic is by John Lennox, and it's called Seven Days That Divide the World. It will walk you through all the different views all the different reasons for the views and it's very clear and, and Lennox is such an engaging writer and I think he hits the important points and keeps the main thing the main thing and so that book would be really helpful for you if you're interested in learning more about this that's called Seven Days That Divide the World by John Lennox. And clicking the subscribe button or simply subscribe to the Elisa Childers podcast on iTunes.